I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I just can't get over my disappointment right now, both about the pun and about that fact. Flux. And I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading The Science of Discworld, which honestly should be called The Science of Roundworld, so I mean, error in the title. And our guest is chemist and science communicator Anna Avenanen. Welcome, Anna. Hello. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, you've been working as a science communicator for quite a long time. About five years now, I think. Yeah. That's a long time. Yeah, <laughs> to do anything. Time is relative. Like the the book does cover that. So yeah, um, it's true. And since the start of the year, you've been working in Canberra. What's the job you've been doing up there? I'm a communications officer at the Australian Academy of Science, and um, what they do is they have a fellowship of top scientists in Australia, and our job is to act as the voice of science in Australia. So we have uh, people working with directly with politicians with the current science minister um, and we produce science content uh, videos and articles for for people who might not know that much about science and just want to have answers to questions about climate change and that sort of thing so that the role that we are trying to play there is to try and translate all of the research into a form that is understood by politicians and by people who need to know about those things like vaccines make good informed decisions about those cool yeah but before that you were a chemist That's your scientific background? Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of a scientist and not a scientist at the same time. I went to uni for chemistry and I've done some actual real research working on problems that no one's ever tried to solve before me. And that went really terribly, which is a (laughs) whole thing. Um, But that's I discovered I like writing about science a lot more than I like doing it. So here I am. I try to kind of translate between the scientists and the people who might not know quite as much about science. That's what science communication is. And for international audience, should we clarify that chemist is not a pharmacist in this context? Oh, yeah. Yes. It's the kind of chemist that makes the molecules, not the kind that sells them. <laughs> That's a great way to define it. Yes. Although a lot of pharmacists are very angry right now, I'm sure. <laughs> so we just describe their job as selling chemicals. Which, I mean, look, is technically accurate, but I think they... Aren't all people who sell anything people who sell chemicals because everything is chemicals? That is very good. I love that. Yes. (laughs) You've made all the chemists listening very happy. Are we not all pharmacists in some way by that definition? (laughs) But you're also, you're not just a science communicator and a chemist, you're also a Terry Pratchett fan, but you've come to him fairly recently. Is that right? Yeah. So until very recently, my only experience was really good omens. And I was really into Neil Gaiman when I was a teenager, and I'd always kind of lumped that with him. And I've only very recently realized how much Pratchett is in that book. 
So I think when I was younger, my problem was I read a lot in Finnish, and I've discovered that that jokes don't really translate between English and Finnish very well. I didn't really like Douglas Adams when I was younger either, and when I read him in English, I was like, "Oh, that's right, that's very funny." And I've had a very similar sort of experience with Pratchett. So I've read a bit more recently, and I'm falling in love. So I'm a bit of a newbie, but I'm. Getting there, I'm becoming a fan. But you, you're an extensive fantasy reader, though. You've read a lot of fantasy books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Tolkien's the go-to for me. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think we should probably get into it because this is a big book with not one but three authors, and we've got a lot to talk about. So we should probably get started, and we should start as we normally do uh, with a reading of the blurb in the fantasy universe of the phenomenally best-selling Discworld series. Everything runs on magic and common sense. The world is flat, and million to one chances happen nine times out of ten. Our world seems different. It runs on rules, often rather strange ones. Science is our way of finding out what those rules are. The appeal of Discworld is that it mostly makes sense in a way that particle physics doesn't. The science of Discworld uses the magic of Discworld to illuminate the scientific rules that govern our world. When a wizardly experiment goes adrift, the wizards of Unseen University find themselves with a pocket universe on their hands, Round World, where neither magic nor common sense seems to stand a chance against logic. Round World is, of course, our own universe, with us inside it eventually. Guided, if that's the word, by the wizards, we follow its story from the primal singularity of the Big Bang to the internet and beyond. We discover how puny and insignificant individual lives are against a cosmic backdrop of creation and disaster. Yet, paradoxically, we see how the richness of a universe based on rules has led to a complex world and at least one species that tried to get a grip on what was going on. Ian Stewart, Jack Cohen, and Terry Pratchett have combined talents to tell the story of the universe from outside, looking in, and from the outside, it's as magical as any world on a turtle. <laughs> It's a very self-serving blurb, really. I mean, it starts with best-selling Discworld series. Got to sell the science somehow, I guess. But I think it kind of makes sense when we add in the context that the book was not published by the regular Discworld publisher. All right, so I kind of want to kick off with a confession. I have been dreading reading this one since the beginning of the podcast, and I was kind of hoping you would forget about it. Like I knew in my heart that you wouldn't, and you kept mentioning <laughs> it every year. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do that one. Um, Please forget, please forget. Um, but it's not as bad as I thought it was. Like I was dreading it more than the first two books, if I'm honest, because I was kind of like, it looks boring, it sounds boring. I didn't understand what it was going to be. I didn't realize that there was going to be a plot to it. I thought it was just going to be a whole lot of dry explanations of things, and I got enough of that at university. So I was like, mm, do I want to do this? And it's huge. So um, just to start the podcast with a huge complaint about me not wanting to read this book and being <laughs> dragged silently protesting without voicing any of this to you until now um it was a pleasant delight that it actually was so readable so yeah um i actually read the blurb and i was very excited because i thought that that premise of having you know these wizards who don't know anything about science or about how science on earth works looking from the outside in i thought that was really brilliant and a really brilliant way to stage a lot of you know the actual science writing I completely agree with that. It's the structure of it is pretty genius, actually, because it makes a lot of potentially dull topics 
grounded in like I don't think they're dull topics but it's hard to string them together other than chronologically but it gives them something that propels them along in a context it gives you breaks in between things I also don't really understand how they managed to accomplish this because I don't know how you would manage to as a team of three people write something this cohesive but that's still in separate sections without it taking an extraordinarily long amount of time and I don't think it did so it seems like Ian and Stuart sorry Ian and Stuart Ian Stewart and Jack Cohen seem very familiar with the books as well that have come before so yeah it's just a really nice marriage between these three people I did read up a bit about how they wrote it and one of the things that spurred the creation of the book is that Jack and Ian were big Pratchett fans, or certainly fans of fantasy and sci-fi literature in general, and they met him at a convention. In fact, there's a story in the book of how some sci-fi authors were talking about how money wasn't important at a convention, and someone felt the need to stand up and say, yeah, sure, it's it's not important if you've got it. And uh, I read another account that said that was Pratchett, it was one of the authors on the panel, and someone in the audience who stood up and, and told him to shut up was either Jack or Ian. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And then they went and had a beer afterwards. Uh, but they kind of already met first. But one of the other things was that when they were writing it, Jack and Ian basically wrote a bunch of essays about science stuff they wanted to talk about. And then they fit the plot around that to make it work. Uh, but also that Terry worked with them to make their chapters funnier. And I think they learned a lot about writing comedy from him because I've read a couple of their other books and they are funny in a very Pratchetty kind of way and they were written after this. So I think I think there's a big influence, um, which was nice to see. But they work really well together, I think. Yeah, it wasn't a drudge. Like It, it wasn't like, oh, finally the Terry Pratchett chapter is here and we'll make it through the science chapter. They're equally compelling but in different ways. So they were distinct but both equally enjoyable which i think is a huge accomplishment yeah i think it was pretty obvious that there were some parts where pratchett would have gone back to the the science essays and put some stuff in because i found that the quality of those essays was a bit variable Uh, we might talk about this later but some of them are pretty impenetrable and some of them are really brilliant to read so yeah I, i kind of found that too actually the other thing of course and they make this distinction in the introduction uh, is that they're also drawing on the wealth of books that exist that are the science of this or the physics of that, which they deride a lot. Um, <laughs> they think are kind of dumb. Uh, and I've read a few of those books. Someone bought me once a copy of one of the science of Doctor Who ones. It was called A Teaspoon and an Open Mind, which is a quote from an episode. I think that was the one. I might be misremembering which one it was, but I didn't like it. I thought it was terrible. Really stretching some of the stuff from the show to talk about the real world because they're not really connected because the the show is not at all like real life in many important ways. I mentioned the kicking and screaming earlier about this one, right? Um, that is because I have n- never read a popular science book and I think that's partly a personality thing with me because I studied science at university and I was, I'm kind of like if I'm getting enough of something in one area, I I don't look for it in others it doesn't quite make sense like i don't partition my life off like that but i was like oh i guess part of me was like popular science that's for other people who aren't studying science which is a snooty kind of way to think about it i was kind of like oh well it wasn't that i thought i know all this it was partly that i felt i had a finite amount of science space in my brain and it was full and so there wasn't anywhere else um, to put more science so i avoided popular science books which 
in the end actually led me to an uncomfortable situation where I found myself at Paul Davies' signing table without one of his books because I'd been shepherded into his line and we kind of just had an awkward conversation and then I left. He was lovely. <laughs> oh, no. He's written yeah. some great ones as well. I'm sure he has. How about you, Anna? Have you read any of those Science of Star Trek kind of books? I have not because I'm not interested in that shoehorning science into things that are clearly not meant to have it. I do read popular science uh, quite a lot now and I very much enjoy it. And I think you would too, Liz, because popular science is not really meant to teach you science. It's meant to communicate science in a way that's like entertaining and interesting and makes you think about the things that are going on instead of just like hammering the facts through to your brain that you will have to then regurgitate in an exam later, which is not an enjoyable experience for most people. No, I think you're completely right. Again, I think reading this, I was like, oh, this is enjoyable. I would have actually quite, if I'd read this at 17 or something, I'd have probably been quite insufferable with the fact that I would have dropped (laughs) on people uh, more (laughs) insufferable than I already was. But yeah, it is, like you say, just a different way of communicating it. And I think... I didn't realize that that was a thing that was possible. I just assumed it was like hard science being shoved into something that didn't need that. And that's not quite it. It's its own thing. I mean, I I read it when I was 20 for the first time. So you can imagine how insufferable I probably was at that age when I read it. And it's interesting that I reading it again now, so many years later, and reading the revised edition, because um, I have the, the original, which was revised when they reprinted it uh, in 2002 alongside the second volume. Yeah, it was an interesting experience, which we'll, we'll get to as we go through the book, I suppose. I guess it's kind of like Back to the Future too. this one, because it was strange, because it knows about the future. It's like, oh yeah, well, in our sequel, we talk about this. And I'm like, what's happening with time <laughs> in this? Because it's so strange to be reading a book that was written beforehand, but that also was partly written after later books were done and it was just so apt i think (laughs) bit timey-wimey wibbly wobbly it is worth mentioning that there are three that come after it and unlike the other three this one's very very broad i think in what it tries to communicate the other three volumes have much narrower focuses which we'll talk about when we eventually get around to to reading those for the podcast but this one's pretty broad how do you think it compares to other science communication or popular science books I mean, most of the other stuff that I read has a specific focus. One that I read recently was about how structural engineering kind of permeates our our world, but generally they don't set out with this goal of let's just cover everything about science from now until the end of time. Yeah, it does seem a bit uh, full on there. Although interestingly, the the big thing they leave out in this book, which they in the revised edition say, well, this is in the sequel is like pretty much all of human history, which is which just seems reasonable. I don't know. It was quite short in context. Very true. If we wanted to try and describe what this book covers science-wise, how would we do that? Literally everything from the beginning of nothing through to a little bit later if we have a space elevator. <laughs> okay. Yep. As in like, it seems like it's literally everything. <laughs> yeah. I think it probably tries to cover the history of the physical sciences. It's very sort of physics heavy is what I noticed. Which is interesting because neither of the science authors are physicists. One of them is a mathematician and the other one's a biologist. Do you think that's possibly because they are not writing from a point of view of things we know and want to explain, but uh, things we are enjoying discovering and bringing you along on the journey kind of thing? 
Yeah. And, you know, and obviously both of them also are science communicators and science writers. I don't want that to seem like a criticism. I don't think you have to be a physicist to write about physics. As someone who has been a science communicator themselves and has no scientific qualifications, I I would be very hypocritical to suggest such a thing. But yeah, I I think you're right. I, I think they are interested in that. But we should get into the plot and we should describe the structure of the book. So if you haven't read it, there's alternating chapters of fiction and nonfiction. I've never seen this done before. Actually, I tell a lie. I have seen it done in one place, a book which was both a sequel and a critique of 1984. It was called Orwell's Revenge, a 1984 palimpsest. It was a very weird book, but that's the only other time I've ever seen this sort of alternating fiction, nonfiction. Have you seen anything like this? Twitter. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Politics, the news. Yeah. Google. (laughs) It's funny because it's true. Uh, but we have this, yeah, the fiction starts off in the high energy magic building. And this is something that's already been introduced in the Discworld books by this stage. It comes just after uh, The Last Continent, the last Wizards one we read, actually. We've met Pondus Dibbins, who's been around since Moving Pictures. And we've met Hex, the magical computer. And now he's doing the magical equivalent of nuclear physics in the Wizards squash court, no less. I love this idea. Like, I'm always fascinated by thinking about magic as if you can explain it in the same way you can explain physics. And here they talk about the fundamental particle of magic being the thorn, uh, and they're going to split it, which I thought was kind of cool. I was saying thalm in my mind. Oh, really? Yeah. As you know, I come from a, a rich background of only really knowing nerdy things that are of no use to anyone. And uh, w- one of the disciplines or magical powers that vampires get in the role-playing game Vampire the Masquerade is a form of blood magic, which they call thaumaturgy, which is an old-fashioned name for magic. And uh, it leads to some great puns. Like, I'm sure in one of the books they're detecting magical fields and they use a thaumometer, which is <laughs> I thought was genius. But, yeah, this is science as magic. This gives me horrible flashbacks to my Zoom catch-up yesterday where everyone left after I started talking about vampire anatomy and how it wouldn't quite work but um yeah so (laughs) magic would explain a lot because scientifically they they shouldn't work it's true the specifically vampire boners cannot happen but yeah (laughs) okay specifically i mm, all right also the teeth don't make sense but okay i feel like we've i feel like we've covered this before but i'm scared to go down that rabbit hole again Uh, the um (laughs) i'll learn from my zoom i'll stop talking about um vampire anatomy and we'll get back (laughs) We've, into splitting of the thorn. Don't tell Liz, but we've actually all left. You've got those Zoom backgrounds that just as you, like, pretending. <laughs> yeah, this is a fake us. <laughs> but this is the start. This is interesting because it sets up from the beginning that it's not just using the disc world as a way to explore our world, but they're also kind of using our world to explore the disc world because here they are setting up a magical experiment that is a clear analogue for the Manhattan Project. Science is magic, magic is science, back and forth mixed in together the way that science works does seem to a lot of people like magic that's even to scientists but scientists actually call it the black box so there's a lot of research scientists that i know that when they're using an instrument or something they have absolutely no idea how that instrument works they just put something in they get some data out and they know what that data means but they don't know how it got there and they don't need to know so so it seems like it's working by magic, but they call it the black box because that's that's a lot cooler, I guess, <laughs> than admitting that you don't know how it works. 
<laughs> I think a lot of people will be surprised to know that that's how scientists function because scientists in fiction particularly always seem to know every scientific thing ever. That's right. So there's this sort of misconception still that knowing science means that you know every part of science. Like when you become a professor of science, you now can answer every question about sciences. Whereas actually the longer you spend in science, the less you kind of know about science in general and the more you know about this one very specific thing that you've just spent 40 years studying that nobody probably wants to hear about, to be honest. It's like, what's the, the old thing people say? A specialist is someone who learns more and more about less and less until they know absolutely everything about nothing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely how it works. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was like a good footnote about um, how you leave school thinking you know literally everything and then university just systematically plucks that away from you and makes you realize there's so much you don't know. And then there's a joke about it leaving like university harvested and just leaves them dry. But I thought that was one of the really good things about this book was how it massage down those assumptions like that you were saying about how it's assumed that scientists know everything but it's more about knowing what you don't know and knowing how to phrase questions from different angles because i thought a really good section was how they went through how people managed to prove that kangaroos couldn't jump because they only looked at it one way so you can't just stop asking questions when you found an answer because that answer is not necessarily true. It's just because you're standing in one specific spot and it might not line up with everything. And even if it does line up, like even if they, if it lines up with what you're seeing, doesn't necessarily mean you're right either. And that kind of comes back to how they talk about narrativium. Even in the science section, uh, they point out that humans think in narratives. And that's true even of scientists. So there's this misconception, again, that science is objective. And even some scientists have this misconception, which is uh, why a lot of structural issues exist in science, because they think science is and will always be objective. But actually, we can only think about things in a subjective way. And that's why having this collective knowledge, which is something else that comes up later, this uh, I think they name it extelligence. Mm. You know, the collective knowledge is very important because it, it kind of cancels out people's individual biases. Yeah. But these first few chapters are not uh, yet talking about our world, because the, the Round World Project hasn't yet started up. But they talk about what the science is, or the analogous science, that is being done in terms of nuclear physics. And we start with this, which it seems like an ambitious thing to start with to me. Like, let's just talk about how nuclear fission works off the bat. And this is one thing I wanted to, to talk about because I think the order in which you present ideas in any work of popular science is hugely important. Like I, I've always thought that A Brief History of Time is a great book, but one of the problems with it is that some of the most difficult to understand ideas happen in like chapter three or four. And so people can't quite get their heads around that. And they think, and that's just chapter four. I have to give up. Whereas some of the later stuff is much easier to understand and no less interesting. So I think... Yeah, you gotta, you gotta think about what order you're gonna put things in. And this makes sense from a narrative perspective. And maybe I'm being a bit harsh. I don't think it is actually that difficult to understand. And everybody's interested in how did they make a nuclear bomb, I suppose. I think I agree with you. I think this was a very tough place to start. I didn't quite understand what was going on until a bit later. And yeah, I do have a science background, so. <laughs> yeah. I think that the way that I coped through university was, to develop a just sort of 
a blindness to things I didn't understand, like my own kind of black box. And whenever it gets complicated and I don't understand it, I'm like, we'll put that away for later and just skip along. I think it was a, a bit of a rough start, but um, I'm just so numb to things I don't understand. I'm like, yep, that's all right. I don't understand that, but I can I can just move on with that because I'm so used to having to read things that I don't understand that I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter when it comes. It's going to be the same. Yeah. yeah. But I guess there's also the fact that I had to read this book, so I didn't really think about whether it was going to impact <laughs> if I finish the book or not. Also, personally, yeah. I um, I pretty much always finish a book when I start it, so it's not quite what you're saying, but like I do agree that the standard of difficulty or, or easing you in matters. Like if they'd started with that chapter that had all of the numbers, I think I would have called you and be like, "I'm not reading this. I'm not. I'm not doing it." <laughs> We're cancelling, and I quit the podcast. But um, but oh. that was probably just the most slog chapter in the whole thing. I think Jack and Ian did not realise they held the future of Pratchett in their very hands when they wrote this book. <laughs> but I'm so glad it worked out okay. Real quickly, though, there was a there was a scene where they describe um about television, and they say, "Oh yeah, Jack was talking at a school," and I was like, "Who the fuck is Jack?" And I like scroll, like I flicked back through the book, being like, "Is this some guy that they've introduced? That I don't know who it is." And I was like, "Oh wait, it's one of the authors." That that really th- that was the thing that threw me most in this book. When then it was, suddenly it was Jack talking. I'm like, "I don't have this familiarity with you yet." But okay, I also found that a bit intrusive at times. I found hmm. it weird for like a different reason, which is that one of the later books they write on their own without Pratchett also talks about intelligence. It's all about alien life forms. And I'll bring it up a few times probably as we get through the book, but they refer to themselves as Jack and Ian, like with no spaces as one word, because they kind of are talking about how you don't know what an intelligence is like. And for all you know, we're one gestalt entity who's written this book and that's how they refer to themselves. And so every time they referred to Jack or Ian independently in this book, I found it a little bit weird. <laughs> so that's just me, though. I edited a science thing a couple of years ago where they suddenly were referencing someone. I was like, who are these? And I realized they were referencing themselves in third person in like the same breath. They were referencing external papers. I was like, you can't do this. You can't be like, oh, well, like these people said this. So we're using that to back up our argument. I'm like, you can't back up your argument with your own argument. That's, that's not a thing. The last thing I want to say before we move further into the book is they, they do get a bit meta in this book because they don't just talk about science in the real world and the sort of analogy of the disc world. They also talk about writing about science for the real world and, and, and what it's like writing a popular science book. And right in this first nonfiction chapter where they're explaining, you know, the squash court experiments that led to the nuclear bomb and, and how nuclear fission works, they have a footnote. They say that every formula halves the sales of a popular science book and then go on to say that's obviously rubbish, but we've tried to avoid putting any in this book anyway. You were shaking your head as I said that, Anna. What's your response to that footnote? Well, it wasn't really that footnote as much as, but then they went on to write this chapter anyway, with all the fundamental constants and all of that. And I, I don't know, I got to the end of this chapter and I was thinking, why are you telling me any of this? And I don't think that's a very good place to leave a chapter. <laughs> no, that's fair. Um, I felt, I felt a bit the same, but you know, I think things get a bit more on track, but these first few fiction chapters and, and the corresponding nonfiction ones are really about setting up the premise of the book. And they, it, it, it's nice that they take the time to not just go, Oh, the wizards have found a pocket universe. It's like, no, they create it. And there's a reason why. And it's basically Ponder Stibbins's fault for doing this weird experiment that he convinces the other wizards to do. But I, I also just, it's been a little while since we've read a wizard's book. 
and I really enjoyed the faculty. <laughs> this they're so they're like maximum them in this book, much as they were in the last continent. But this one, it's just oh, it's really good. Right, there's a one in fifty chance that everything will get ruined. Well, that's pretty good odds. Like, I mean, I wouldn't bet I on a horse on those odds. So let's. <laughs> yeah. That was great. Yeah, that was really and, good. And their main motivator being it's cold in their room. So like, let's risk it. Totally gels with university faculties that I've known. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, from from my experience with universities, um, being in universities a bit for research as well, it's it's frighteningly accurate. But I think I, I got to say, my I think one of my favourites in this book though is Mushroom Ridkelly, and I, I've always enjoyed him. But I think in this book, more so than in a lot of the others, it really shows that he's not, uh, you know, he's not he's he's blustery, but he's not an idiot. He he does kind of get it. It's just that he can't be having with all of this complicated business. He's just like, just get to the point. I don't need to, like he would not have any time for that first nonfiction chapter. He'd be skipping to the bit where they're like, just explain what it means. I don't need to know all these numbers. And then later in the book where they start referring to us, the reader, as Arch Chancellor, <laughs> I thought that was a really nice touch. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he's very canny. Like he realizes in the, in the second fiction chapter, um, where they have the, the big on turning of the Thormic reactor. Um, he's the one who waits till everyone else is gone. And then he says to Ponder Stevens, so when did you really turn it on? <laughs> because he knows that this is just for show. Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed that. It was really nice. Um, and then we get to the a chapter, which is explicitly titled Science and Magic, kind of all about how we think about the world and what is the difference between those things? You know, how did we come up with this way of thinking about the universe? And in some ways I feel like this should have been the first nonfiction chapter because I really loved this. It really should have. This was the most accessible of the chapters, I thought, and their use of Arthur C. Clarke, I think, tie their two themes very well together. Like he's a good bridge between the two things. One of, one of the things that is introduced in this chapter, which has become hugely influential in the way that quite a few people talk about how science is taught and how science is communicated, is the concept of lies to children, uh, which is a hyphenated phrase. They, uh, they introduce it in this chapter. And this is the idea that, you know, part of our teaching system has built in that when we teach you about, for example, particle physics, we show you a model of an atom that looks like a little sun with little planets orbiting around it. And we say, this is how an electron orbits an atom. And then later on, when you learn more about particle physics, you realize that's not actually how it works. It's much more complicated than that. It's like the thing about um, how electrical transfer is gnomes high-fiving each other. Like it's You can understand the concept easier, even though it's not literally that. Or is it? <laughs> I kind of hope it is now. <laughs> It was like how telephone calls work because it's just like gnomes running up and down the wires, like high-fiving each other and that Morse code's a message to you. Okay, well, I don't want to get bogged down in real-world physics too much because the thing that next happens in the fiction is that the thormic reactor works splendidly well, too well, in fact, and it is producing massive quantities of raw magical energy. It's a runaway chain reaction of a sort that they don't really explain how it works in terms of magic and that's fine. <laughs> They'd be making it up. So who cares? But the problem is what are they going to do? Like they can't safely shut it down. So they have to find a use for all the energy. And this is where Hex comes into the picture because Hex is like, oh, I've got an idea. Let's run the round world project. And everyone's like, that's what's that? And they go, oh, it's this old weird magical project to create a universe without any magic in it, but you need too much magic to do it. And they're like, well, we've got too much magic. So let's do it. 
But I think the weirdest thing for me is that it's called the Round World Project, and then they are consistently surprised that everything in it is round, including <laughs> the worlds. I'm like, what? Surely it should have had a different name. Well, I mean, the time's a bit out of loop here because they're referring to the ancient, like, loco scrolls, which they then talk about in the nonfiction chapter, Oclo, which is like an anagram of it. Mm. So, like, but because they're referring to scrolls, assumedly, that have sort of sourced from the round world, it's all kind of going round and round in circles. Oh, no, they're from the disc world. They're just from a different part of the disc world, the okay. world. I thought it was like kind of like a leak backwards and forwards in time, like they're both feeding back on each other. Yeah, well, there is that because like Hex does that later on in the book, like in order to figure out how to run round world and, and to predict what's going to happen. It sort of taps into this, I think they use the phrase once and future computing, which is a great weird idea, but it sort of goes into its future to figure out what it needs to do to do the things it wants to do now and doesn't cause any paradoxes somehow. So there is there is definitely some uh, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey nonsense going on. Uh, but then they, you know, they use that as an excuse because they, they, they start up the Round World Project and the one of the faculty wiggles his fingers inside it, which seems like a very bad idea, and that starts the universe, or at least happens around the same time. And they're like, I would remove your fingers very quickly if I were you, uh, and then there's a big bang. And so this tiny universe... It, which is really a huge universe, but it exists inside a, a little bottle on the Discworld, um, so they can observe the whole thing, starts up, and this is where they start talking about the origin of the universe, or indeed just the idea of things beginning or becoming other things and how difficult that is for human brains. And I I really liked this chapter as well, because I, I thought, that's true. You know, I haven't really thought about that Um but it's true. Like we do like to think things have a definite beginning, and that you can easily draw a line in the sand between thing A and thing B. Whereas that's really not how it works in nature. This was a big era for maybe it's always been a thing, but like a big era for tiny worlds and microcosms. Because there was that Simpsons episode where Lisa creates the world when Bart um, accidentally messes up her project. Remember, and that would have been around this time. Cause that would have been in the nineties. Oh, and yeah. then in Men in Black, there's the one where like there's the Marvel universe as well like big spoilers for men in black there's a universe contained within a marble on a cat's collar i think or a dog's collar um and there's also like a universe inside a locker so like mini universes in the late 90s seem to have been quite a, a thing that people were thinking about like microcosms is it micro it's not really microcosms microcosms are like a small version of society isn't it but like a tiny universe is something else like a microcosmos <laughs> One thing I did specifically want to mention from this chapter, uh, which is called Beginnings and Becomings, that they talk about the fact that there's no binary, like you, you can't separate things into X and Y because there's always a continuum in natural systems. And one of the ones they specifically mention is sex in human beings and in animals in general. Like there is no such thing as this means male and this means female. Like the, the line they use is there are at least a dozen different combinations of sex chromosomes in humans of which... Only XX represents the traditional female and XY the traditional male. They were writing this in 1999, and I'm pretty sure they weren't at all thinking about LGBT issues at all. But it's sort of heartening to know that even with someone who probably doesn't have that as an agenda, if you're thinking about this properly from a scientific point of view, that's just that's just true. I think it's a narrativium thing to put stuff into little boxes. The idea that I really loved from this chapter is the universe is a process 
And this is really, I think, a very beautiful concept that helps us think about how the natural world works. So we see a lot of stuff that's like set and solid and unmovable. But actually, when you look at it much closer, everything's always moving and changing and and becoming something else. Yeah, and they had that caution about not calling other universes Earth-like because what we know as Earth-like is only a snapshot of this really long history. Yeah, and it's a theme that kind of recurs throughout the book. You know, they talk about that a lot in the later chapters about paleontology and dinosaurs as well, where it's like, well, we think we know what dinosaurs are like, but really we just get these little sort of slice of life uh, snippets of what the world was like in those times, and we can't know what it was really like. Uh, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I like that too. That was a really cool analogy. Because since then, they've they've decided that dinosaurs had feathers as well instead of like their leathery skin. Like since this book was written. Well, they do mention the feathers in the book, and it was kind of around this time when it was becoming kind of more obvious that more dinosaurs had feathers. But it wasn't until kind of when the revised edition was published that they kind of knew more about that. Although we'll talk more about that when we get to the dinosaurs chapter because I have things to say about this. <laughs> you? Things to say about dinosaurs? I know what? who'd have thought it, but we're not quite there yet. We should get back to where we were up to, which is chapter seven, which is where Hex does its once and future computing trick. And uh, the wizards are very annoyed by the elements. <laughs> They're like, these elements are rubbish. Uh, which seems rude. Seems very rude. But then they, they also, uh, burn some stuff under the universe to try and heat it up and apparently start off some stars. Although they don't, they're always complaining about the stars as well. I, I do really like the way they complain about everything in the round world constantly. They're just like, this is rubbish. This isn't a proper star. It's way too big and it's too far away. And, uh, yeah, I just, I really kind of enjoyed that. It actually, plays into how some scientists think about science as well. It's when you get so married to a certain idea of how things are supposed to work, anything other than that looks like nonsense, like you must have gotten it wrong. Yeah, and they do eventually address that more directly in the book when they talk about what your response should be when someone says there's no evidence for something and and questions like that. Anything that challenges what you hold as a column of life or knowledge some people are tempted to ridicule it um, other people to just argue against it others to accept it but they're like a lot smaller but it's kind of like how you know in all the big scientific discoveries like the guy who discovered ether he did an experiment in front of everyone and it failed when he was demonstrating it and he got like mocked out of science and germs and all of all of the things like every time someone does something to challenge a widely held thing it's disliked which is kind of like an extreme end of them not liking round world science. That's also now known as the supervisor effect. Anytime you're trying to demonstrate something to your supervisor, it will not work. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Or the, um, the mum one where you, you can't find something in a drawer and you look for like 20 minutes and you ask your mum, she comes over, she pulls it out immediately. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Or, uh, you know, if you contact the IT department because you have a problem, it will not replicate itself while they are there at your desk in that precious mm. three seconds of time that they have allocated to you. Uh, and I say that having been someone who's worked in that job. It's, I think there's a lot of things like that that feel very universal. There's also an element of the wizards being the kind of old guard who are like, well, it's not like back in our day. You don't get proper planets these days. You know, that kind of looking towards the past kind of argument. There's an element of that in there too, I think. Hmm. 
One thing I do really like about the chapter where they're kind of looking at the elements in Round World, once they realise there's new elements, they start naming them all after themselves, which is, of course, what the wizards would do. But there's a great bit also where they realise that there's iron in there and it's pretty much the same as iron on the disc world. And they're all a bit amazed and go, is it proper iron? What's what's all that about? And uh, Ridcully's like, as above, so below. Are you forgetting your kindergarten magic? And I just love how, you know, this sort of basic ideas of of magical practices from our world form the sort of fundaments of you know magical practices on the disc world as well and they bring those things in i just i don't know i really i enjoyed that but i also really like the chapter after that which is perhaps obligatorily titled we are stardust or at least we went to woodstock which i thought was a nice uh, little aside there and this is kind of where they talk about the fundamentals of of chemistry where it comes from what it is it did not talk about what chemistry does at all. It was it was kind of like it described the alphabet of chemistry pretty much. It was like, here are the things that make up chemistry. Let's go. Or whatever. It's it's kind of like trying to describe a dog without telling you why the dog's so cute, because you know, it runs up to you at the door and wags its tail and it loves you. So I, I found that this chapter was very lacking and did not describe chemistry very well to me. Because like the universe chemistry is also a process. It's all these reactions and all of the stuff that makes up all of us. But I did not get that sense from this chapter, actually. I don't I don't know if I'm alone on that. I'm kind of glad um, that you said that because I found this not a very exciting chapter. Like I was kind of like, there's good jokes and I enjoyed the jokes that didn't have anything to do with the science. But the rest of it, I was like, yeah, those sure were words that I've read. When are the wizards coming back? <laughs> oh, rough. Do you think that's because neither of the science authors are chemists? Is chemistry a forgotten science? (laughs) Yeah, I I think so. Um, And you're right, chemistry is often one of those sciences that's kind of everywhere, but nobody really knows what it is and what it does. And and it's very difficult to put in those boxes, so people tend to sort of forget about it. But in general, I did find it very obvious when we – in the book Neared a Science that one of the authors was really into because those are the chapters that get really evocative and get really into the storytelling instead of just like listing the relevant facts that will describe this one thing. Yeah. Do they even mention chemistry when they're talking about so-called hard sciences and the life sciences or physical and life sciences are not really separate, they're kind of together? Like they don't even really talk about chemistry then. I think they kind of leave it out, which is pretty rude. I think this is the only chapter where they really talk about chemistry by name or where it's very obviously they're describing chemistry everywhere else. It's kind of present but not really named, which I find is still a thing that science journalists and science communicators do even now. They talk about it, but they just call it science, not chemistry. I'm not quite sure why. And I could probably talk about that forever. (laughs) Are there any celebrity chemists? Because there's a lot of celebrity physicists. I mean, that could be the symptom or the cause or neither. But There are chemists who are well known in the chemistry community and that's about it. Mm. So I, d- I don't think there's a single chemist that's like, you know, commenting on stuff in news or, or making popular science videos or something. It's always physicists, it seems like. Is this the space mm. and dinosaurs problem? Which was something that got talked about a lot when I got into science communication was that the Everybody wants to know about space and about dinosaurs. And so physicists and paleontologists, well, not so much paleontologists because 
they often don't get to talk about dinosaurs. People just write books about dinosaurs. But that's what people want to hear about, and that's what people think about as a consequence when they think about science. And so it's a bit more difficult for anybody else to kind of get their foot in the door. I think it's you, you usually have to have a concept in mind when you want to talk about chemistry, like fire is chemistry, so fireworks is a chemistry thing, but then that's very clearly physics as well. Or then you can talk about biochemistry, about how medication works or or that sort of thing, but then you're talking about human beings or you're talking about animals, so that's biology. So it's kind of at the fringes of everything, which makes it very difficult. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What I did find very entertaining in this chapter was that they they drew a very definite line that 113, I think, was the number that they cited. So it was either 113 or 115 elements is, is as many as we're going to get. And, I mean, obviously now we're at 118. So they were <laughs> very clearly wrong. And actually 118 <laughs> is also probably not where we're going to stop because there's people still trying to find the even heavier elements. I bet they feel like a ripe bunch of plum bums. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was a very definitive statement is what got me. It's like, yeah, this is, this is it. This is definitely it. Cause they've led us astray. Yeah. They did update this section. I mean, like the original edition did not talk about some of the higher elements, which means that some of them were being synthesized for the first time, or at least written about just after the first edition came out. So just to put that in context, the first edition was published in 1999. The revised edition came out at the same time as the second book in the series in 2002. That's only three years. And I tried documenting it and uh, it was difficult. And I stopped uh, because I was trying to read two different copies of the book at the same time to compare them. But there's a lot of new stuff in the revised edition. And interestingly, I think, because one of the things you're saying there about them saying it definitively, a lot of the stuff they put in that is new science from those three years, they talk about as if this is it, you know, this is the thing. And they kind of, I think they feel like they, they're ignoring their own advice because they do touch on during the book at several points how, you know, science doesn't have, there's not an answer and we shouldn't feel like science has solved everything because at any moment someone could discover something, which means something we really believe is is a true um, observation of the universe is wrong, you know? So it's, yeah, I felt that was a bit weird that they did that. It's like the lies to children, but like the university early science lies to children version of things is that science doesn't prove anything. It just disproves things, which again is not entirely true, but it's like the next stage in lies to children and understanding science. Yeah. By this stage in the fiction, the round world project has really started to take off. One of the things I found really weird is that some of the fiction chapters are really thin. Like, there's very little that happens in them. There's several that's just Ponder or, or one of the other wizards or Hex just thinking about something, basically, and there's nothing really that happens. But they all do serve that function of bringing up in the fictional context the thing that they want to talk about in the essay that follows it. And they start trying to make turtles, but all the worlds they try to make collapse into balls, and so then there's a chapter about how the Earth was formed and why it's a spherical kind of shape. And then Ponder's trying to figure out how do these round worlds work and move around, but he can't make sense of the rules. And then there's a chapter titled Where Do Rules Come From, where they talk about what scientific rules are. And this is where they go into that idea of scientific fundamentalism and believing that science has all the answers when, you know, it's got some answers, but they might be wrong. They're just the best ones we have right now. I'm paraphrasing pretty liberally there, but I think that's a reasonable 
representation of what they're trying to say, do we think? I Yeah, I think so. And actually, we're getting a very good sort of compressed timescale of this this year with regards to the pandemic, because, I mean, the science around it has been changing so rapidly. And we've we've seen politicians and, and some folks are getting quite mad about it. It's like, well, masks is the example. In even March, I remember Australian scientists were saying, look, masks probably won't help you at all. It's not something that'll be beneficial. And now the advice is wear a mask if you're going out. And people are like, well, why have you changed your mind? But that's just how science works. Partly also, I think people associate if if something is wrong, then that's like a truly, truly bad thing that has to be like punished for a while. Whereas like you can be wrong in science a lot and to admit that or learn from it is part of the process, but that's not widely felt outside of it because like if you're in a non-science field make a mistake like you also learn from that as well but it's viewed differently i think so that's why it's so hard to accept the moving goalposts of things definitely and i think one of the other things that i learned from my science education that's been very useful in life as well is the ability to admit when you don't know something like when I was when I was defending my honors thesis, we had a I had an oral exam where there's like four professors from the university asking you questions about your research, um, and it was horrifying. And um, a mentor said to me before that, like, if you don't know something, don't just make it up on the spot. Say you don't know, and then uh, explain how you would find out. And that's very useful in in life as well, where we've got this sort of need to bullshit our way through everything which isn't necessarily helpful because when you're talking you're not listening so if you don't know something you should just shut up and listen to what other people have to say about it who know more than you absolutely yeah one of the things i think that's a recurring concept of the book that kind of links into that is failure and disappointment because this is constantly what the wizards experience as they try to influence what's going on inside the round world universe, Ponder thinks he's got some sort of idea of how the rules work. So he's like, okay, well, we can't make turtles for people to live on. Well, they keep talking about turtles, whereas, of course, people on Discord don't live on the turtle. They live on the world, which is on the elephants, which is on the turtle. But they keep going, well, we've got to make a turtle world, otherwise it's no way to live. They can't do that. And Ponder's like, well, I'll make a round one. Maybe we can make that work. And he kind of does, but then he collapses and he's believe he can't figure it out. And the other wizards try to help and they mess up his world. And they spend so much of the book despondent and, and disappointed. But it's kind of, I don't know, it felt, I felt it was kind of cathartic reading it right now, to be honest. And also that's how I spent a lot of the time that I was in research. So <laughs> accurate, <laughs> despondent and disappointed. Because like a failure or a negative result is still very useful in science, of course. If we go, I'm going to try and read 100 books in a year and we only get to 58, we sort of go, oh, well, that was no good. But but you still read 58 books. Like, that's that's good. But it was we 48 tend books to... you didn't read. So, like, I mean, why bother reading any books? <sighs> but <Kidding>. it's... it's uh... <laughs> uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to make myself feel better. Uh, but the... But, you know, and in science, it's it's kind of the same, you know, like you, you might stage an experiment to find out if such and such thing is true and you don't find out that it's true, but you still learned something. You learned that that's not true, right? You, that you've eliminated something from the possible explanations. And if you've built half a house and can't figure out how to build the rest of it, that means that half a house is already built for someone else to finish. Yeah. 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 That's, that's definitely, 
Yep, the the only person that will read your PhD thesis is probably the student that comes after you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> the no. cumulative knowledge and the individual being forgotten to the overall thing, like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. But we learn more about the solar system. We learn more about how it formed. We learn about planets formation. We learn about the earth itself as the wizards poke this round world that Ponder's made and try and make it sort of more interesting. The three of us had a cry about Pluto not being a planet anymore and them not knowing that yet as well. Like that. I did not have a cry about that. I mean, I, I understand people are sentimental about Pluto. That's fair enough. But I also made jokes about it at the time in a comedy show I wrote. Uh, about there being a hotline for people who were upset at its reclassification. Uh, but and that was like in 2006, 2007? 2006 is correct. 2006, yeah, thank you. Um, well, I think my show was the year after that. But even so, like that's just a few years after this book was updated. And that's the weird thing, you know. I mean, they've made this effort to update the book three years later. But then some of the biggest changes, of course, have come after that time. Like Higgs boson. Yeah. And I mean, they do talk about Pluto maybe not really counting as a planet, but, you know, it was going to be classified as a Cooper Belt object. But that was because they hadn't invented the definition of dwarf planet yet. And there's this whole thing where they needed to change the definition of planet. Otherwise, they were going to have to have 58 planets in the solar system. I don't know why 58 is my number today. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it was going to be a lot. So it was interesting how a lot of the things they were saying were lining up with things that would happen, but they weren't writing late enough to include them. Well, I mean, it's just drawing a box around Pluto again, right? It's It doesn't really matter what we call Pluto. Pluto is just going to keep on being Pluto. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the more important thing was to make a useful definition of planet. But I've recently learned that there's some drama around this definition still in the astronomy and space science communities, specifically between those two communities, that there's one of them that thinks that it should definitely still be a planet and that the right experts weren't consulted making this decision. So there's, if you feel like Pluto should still be a planet, there are scientists out there who agree with you. You are not alone. I would absolutely yeah. watch the sitcom about this like married scientist couple that are each like heavily involved in each side of that camp. Like, I think that would be great. <laughs> Oh, Science man. sitcom that doesn't suck. That's a new. That's a new concept. We could give it yeah. a go. I'd be willing um, to denounce Pluto for this. Uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, look, I, that's not a hard one for me. I'm not very invested in Pluto. Um, I'm more invested in the other objects that haven't had a Guernsey as a planet. Oh, and they could have that weird friend who's there for like. Oh, they should actually expand the definition of planets and let all those weirdos in. So, like, the neighbor that pops in all the time is like, yeah, look at look at this, like, spacing and give them names every time. All right, we're doing this. It's going to be great. It's starting <laughs> to become a, an extended metaphor. I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they talk about the Earth as they kind of fiddle with the Earth in the Round World Project. Uh, they talk about the Earth's atmosphere. They talk about um, where the moon came from. One thing I thought was really interesting and, and a nice touch was when they were talking about the formation of the solar system, they mentioned that this is pretty much the closest to a disk world that they can find in the real universe, which is when you have a sun forming, it kind of spins around and forms this disk. And as the sort of center part coalesces into a sun, bits spin off and become the planets. So the planets and a sun are formed at the same time, which has the consequence that that means there's lots of planets around suns or you would expect to find them. And this was another one where, you know, since this book was published and even updated, we've found so many exoplanets or planets that are not around our sun. In fact, I think it's the counts up to nearly 5,000 or something like that. It's, it's a, it's a big number. Maybe it's not quite that big. I had, I did research it, but I decided not to bring all my research into this 
podcast or we would be here all day. But yeah, it's a lot. Once they've mucked about with the planet and you tried giving it a moon and tilting it on its axis to try and, and it's, it's kind of that weird thing where, you know, when people talk about the winters in uh, Game of Thrones and they're trying to come up with a solar system that makes it work, they always do try to make like a real universe solar system. I'm like, why don't you make a disc world? That would be easier. <laughs> like, then you could have any explanation for it that you wanted. I quite like that in this one, it's the opposite. Like they're trying to figure out how do you make this stupid universe work so that you get sunrise and sunset and you get a moon and you get tides and you get seasons. Like, how do you make that work with balls that float through the universe in circles? I don't understand it. So that was quite fun. It's like the thing about like reversing questions from the beginning. They were saying about like, how about zebras? You don't ask like why they're in groups. You ask why, like what would happen if they didn't go in groups and you can come to the answer faster. Mm, Yeah. No, that was cool. Uh, but that leads to a chapter where they talk about the things that aren't there. Like, there's no element of darkness, uh, and there's only one kind of light. So, on the Discworld, they establish that they have, like, what do they call it? Pseudo-light, which is how you can see where the dark is before the light arrives, because light on the Discworld moves very slowly. Uh, but there's nothing like that in the round world. That gives them an excuse to write a chapter that, you know, we have all these names for things that don't really exist, that are useful concepts, like cold and darkness those aren't actual physical things they're just our words for the absence of things which is something that Pratchett plays with a lot in his writing like he often talks about how you know such and such is is just the absence of this very important thing the opposite of it is actually something much more sinister um which is yeah i thought that was nice that that came in because it's such a, a thing that he likes to play with so would there be languages where there aren't words for those things because they are to just describe a thing that's not there? I guess uh, there could be, but it, I mean, big things like dark, like I think everyone's got a word for dark, right? Like so you need to be able to talk about it. Yeah, but you could just you could just use the words for light and talk about the absence of light. You don't have to give it its own word for a thing. But it seems that these things are universally almost, um, which is impossible to know for sure without looking at every single language given a word, even though you could get around it with the words for the things that do exist? I think the experience of cold and of dark is what makes it real to us, as opposed to, you know, some sort of particle that is or isn't there at that time, Mm. talking about light specifically. So I I think this is where the human experience and science kind of diverge. Mm. Hmm. And they talk about that later in the book. They introduce a word that I had, I mean, and I must know it because I've read this book before, but I'd completely forgotten, which is a word for like the the things that humans experience. This word, which I couldn't remember or find in the text during recording, is qualia, or in the singular, quail. Its origins are in 19th century philosophy. And while the concept certainly has its critics and supporters today, It's a beautiful word for, as philosopher Daniel Dennett puts it, the way things seem to us. Which is independent of whether a thing actually exists or not. And it's real to us. You know, like, being cold is real to us. Feeling heat from capsaicin because you've eaten a a capsicum or a a pepper or something else that's hot, even though there's not actually heat in your mouth, it feels like hot and it's real to us. So it's those things have words because we have this physical sensation or inner experience of them, even if they're not technically a physical reality. Uh, but then we, we kind of enter the phase of the book where life turns up. Um, and the wizards are initially very disappointed that there isn't any. 
And then they're very disappointed that there is some because it's so boring <laughs> because it's just, in their words, blobs. Um, and the chapters sort of talk about the, the creation or the, the rising of life on Earth, different ways that could have happened, what the kinds of life were, the mechanisms of evolution, and they're kind of just getting used to the way life works when it gets destroyed for the first time. And they're very upset about this uh, and think it's it's all over. And then that leads them into this sort of cycle of where they get their hopes up about various life forms and then they get disappointed when they get destroyed in a cataclysm of some sort, usually a comet or an asteroid, but also other things that happen to them. I kind of enjoyed this because we've got the wizards as these external kind of observers who over a period of, I think it's a few weeks that they run the project, which is millions and millions of years, you know, billions of years really uh, in round world time. Uh, just constantly saddened <laughs> and, and, and just like, this is, no, I got my hopes up about the crab civilization and then they got destroyed. I just, I really like this part of the book. The crab civilization was very good. And also yeah. the, the constant sadness and disappointment again is a very real part of science. So <laughs> I'm very <laughs> pleased to see it communicated. Can you tell why I'm not in research anymore? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> No more crab civilization sadness. It's all in the past. Yeah. One of the other things I found really interesting is Pratchett sort of reusing some ideas in order to make this work. Like this idea of the virtually their suit, which is quite a forward thinking idea in 1999. I mean, virtual reality had been a concept and and in some way executed since the mid 90s, at least, but hadn't really gone anywhere. And here he is, you know, writing about a magical virtual reality helmet and suit that lets you go into the round world project without really being there and wander around and even exert a little force on it and mess things up, but you can't actually take anything into it. And it also felt a bit like the bit in Interesting Times when Rincewind finds the magical armor that he puts on and it's like he's playing Lemmings, you know, which um, I'm sorry to bring up memories of that book, but, you know. Is this... The year after The Matrix came out? Like, was that 98 that was The Matrix, or was that 99? Same year, 1999. So it couldn't have been an influence. It's just a coincidence that they're talking about virtual realities. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I didn't think about it this way. But I think it is after things like Lawnmower Man, for example. Not that that is a good representation <laughs> of um, virtual reality. But, yeah, the, the various civilizations and life forms that sort of rise and get destroyed and, oh, it's... It's very sad, but it allows them to talk about a lot of things, including how possible life is. You know, it's really not necessarily very likely, and yet here we are. And talking about, as a result, what does something being very likely even mean? And talking about our experience of probability and how we don't really understand it. They don't quite go into that, but that's it's kind of in the same ballpark as what they're talking about, I think. I think it's really hard to decenter humans from your understanding of the world because that's how we live our lives. Like it's hard to fight the assumption that we're supposed to be here, that everything sort of led up to us being because it did, but that's not the reason for it. It just kind of happened and we haven't actually been here for that long. And I think in uni, the thing that blew my mind the most in terms of that, because I hadn't realized that's how I was thinking was when we were learning about, I know this is like a, a weird year to mention it, viruses. We're talking about how it causes all these symptoms in your body, like if you get a bad virus and it does all these things. We're all kind of like, well, why does it do this? Like, what's the point? Like, how come 
they do these things to the human body. And that's because you're thinking about the human body as being the primary thing. Whereas one of our lecturers framed it like, what if the world exists or the human body exists to help viruses replicate? Like what if viruses are mm. the center of earth and life and everything existing? And we're just here to facilitate that. I think about that quite a lot, actually, because that's like, it's not likely that anything is the reason for anything being here, but it's just as likely that we exist to replicate viruses as the earth exists for us to be on it. Yeah. I can't remember what book it was in, but there was a book I read about biology that talked about how we're taught to think about caterpillars as the mechanism by which you make butterflies because butterflies are beautiful and fragile and only last a little bit of time. But they said, but it's much more reasonable given how much time creatures spend as caterpillars to think about butterflies as a mechanism for making more caterpillars because they just show up to breed and ma- and lay eggs. Like that's, that's their entire point. And then there's caterpillars that live a lot longer and spend a lot more time growing before they, you know, go all gooey and turn into a, a butterfly. Sentient goo. Yeah, I know. It's weird, isn't it? But in a similar way, that kind of got me thinking, you know, it's important to upend those things and think about, well, could it be the other way around? And really, it's not either way around, as they talk about in this book, like things evolve together, like these systems are complex and they they can't evolve in isolation. They kind of, you know, influence each other and that's how things happen. Hmm. I think we're getting to the point where where mind brains <laughs> getting very bogged down by details. <laughs> there was a very good point. Uh, I think it's in one of these life chapters where it's talking about everything is context, and there's too much to learn. And it's like trying to understand a giant machine when you don't understand a screwdriver. And that's <laughs> yeah, that's very much how I feel when I'm I start thinking about like oh humans and then Earth and then solar system and then universe. It's, it's it's a bit too big for my brain, I think. I kind of felt like that reading this book as well. Like it was just a bit much in a year that's been quite <laughs> stressful, but it's not quite the same. <laughs> there is a lot in there. And we're not quite at the end, but I think by this stage, we've got a good feel for what the book is like. And I mean, are we meant to kind of understand all the individual things? Or do you think there's a larger message or theme that all of these examples are meant to help convey? I think the underlying theme is science isn't as black and white as one might think and that one of its great assets is that it makes you question things and it makes you want to find out more it's not there to provide all the answers it's to provide a framework for you to look at the world and to try and understand things but also to know that you never will understand all of it and I think that is a message through the whole book because I do dedicate quite a lot of space to talking about not understanding things or like examples from the past that have changed even though as you pointed out earlier ben um, they don't always listen to their own advice um, and put things down as definitive but it's because it's hard not to i think sometimes but yeah you're not supposed to walk away being like okay i can explain the big bang and all of the things like you you can have a bit of knowledge about all of it but it did feel like an overall book to educate about what science is itself and I think yeah. that's what the that's what the best sort of popular science books do. They teach you how to think about science. Like this showcases science as a process and and teaches you how to ask those questions what you think about the virus that's driving your body <laughs> as opposed to the other way around. Oh, I hate that image oh, so very, much. It's a very, very last of us kind of uh, horrible future, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's a real thing, though. There's a lot of research at the moment about how much your like gut microbiome 
influences how you think. So maybe、mm -hmm. there is actually microorganisms inside you that influence how you behave, which is again a very, very difficult thing to think about because we like to think of ourselves as like a, an individual entity that's always in control of our thoughts and our actions, but that's not really how it works. Yeah, well, where are the Yerks from in the Andalite Chronicles? Because like they've probably got their own version of the books where they're like they're these conquering heroes going out to find new worlds and keep getting thwarted by this group of kids, and it's all very sad.、Um, because yeah, it's it's whose lens are you viewing things through? Yeah, that point you just made, Anna, makes me think of like towards the end of the book where they're talking about intelligence versus intelligence and and sort of the difference between mind and culture. And the fact that those two things can't exist independently of each other, like they they evolve together and influence each other back and forth. They're a system, a process, as you were saying earlier. And I think that's you know that's part of that. Even if there were no viruses or bacteriums or you know weird parasites influencing our thoughts, our thoughts are heavily influenced by things outside of us, like not even just inside our body, but like outside of our bodies by the world around us. I did、mm. want to ask what you thought this term "extelligence" means because I looked it up a couple times on Wikipedia, and apparently it's a term that Ian and Jack have come up with, basically.、Mm. And、um, to me, I, I thought it meant the same thing that I was talking about earlier—this collective intelligence thing, where you know nobody individually knows how a nuclear reactor works, but together as the human race, we do know. But then, it, it, when I looked it up, it seemed to not quite mean that. I put it in my too hard basket and was like, "That's a word they've made up. I'm gonna just read the things around it and not attach a definition <laughs> to it because there was a lot going on in this book. If I try and understand, I mean, that's a bad one to just let myself skip past. But I was like, if I try and understand every concept in this, I'm gonna be reading it for a year. So that's something I put in my too hard basket. But I would like to know. They do talk about it a lot in their other book. What does a Martian look like? And really, from my understanding of it, it's mostly just any system for information that is, does not rely on what goes on in your brain. So、uh, they talk about how writing and publishing and printing were hugely important for the development of intelligence. It's something I was going to bring up because they do have in a footnote they talk about how words have power, but the written word has even more power, which I think is an area where they haven't examined their own biases very much. Because there are, you know, non-literary cultures and traditions that have huge amounts of very important knowledge. Aboriginal Australian cultures are a big one. They didn't have any form of writing, and they didn't need one. They have passed down information that is still vitally important and very scientifically significant and useful in our modern day, but it's not given the same. Respect and primacy because it's not written down, and that's that's just a form of prejudice. That doesn't mean it's not important, but that is also a form of intelligence. You know that that ability to turn things into stories that persist and preserve the important information while still being able to change and and grow over time. I know that I said I put it in my too hard basket, but you've both raised very good points about it. When I looked at it, I was basically like, surely it's like exterior intelligence or intelligence from the past, because like just on a pure neologism level, like that's what I would have assumed. It sounds like a really simplified, like lies to children version of what you were saying, Ben. And please correct me if I'm wrong,、um, so that you can cancel me from the podcast. <laughs> is that it's intelligence from other people that's given to you later? Like it's from you couldn't have come up with it in your brain, and so. 
it's come from other sources and that's intelligence. Like, is that sort of correct? Because it sounds yeah. to me like if that's the case, I hate it because they're <laughs> trying to create two poles or a binary that I don't think is logical. Like, because intelligence is complicated enough as it is and that is not just from within your own brain. Like, that's you have to process outside things for it and to try and attack intelligence as a separate thing from it I think makes the whole picture too murky, but that could be me not understanding what they mean by intelligence. But it feels kind of like a word that doesn't need to exist, trying to capture a concept that doesn't neatly fit. And I I think that's why I, I asked you about it, because I had that same experience when I was reading this book. I'm like, I don't quite understand this term, but I'm pretty sure they don't need it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they could have expressed what they wanted to express in a better way. Yeah, it's like making a concept for the sake of a concept, potentially, because like it certainly didn't augment my reading of the book, or I don't feel like my reading of the book was harmed by not interrogating what that word meant. That might not be the case. Like Maybe my reading would have been better if I thought about it longer, but I don't think it was, which to me says that perhaps we don't need it. I mean, in science communication, mostly our job is to remove jargon, not to put it back. Hmm. Yeah, look, I get where you're coming from. I think partly one of the problems with the concept is they're kind of trying to put a word on what it is that makes humans different from other intelligent animals. Talking in one of the evolution chapters about, you know, the size of brains and the fact that one of the things that humans can do that other brains can't is we've kind of got a recursive brain, whereas it's not just that we can see a banana and figure out how to get it when we're looking at it. We can, when we're not even near a banana, imagine a situation in which a banana is in a difficult-to-get place and think about the problem of how to solve that and remember it. And then when we get to into a similar situation, use that knowledge that we just created out of nothing. And I think intelligence is like meant to be like, it's not just that you can imagine the situation of the banana and how to get it, but you can draw a diagram or write down a set of instructions or create a story which explains that that then someone else can get, and they don't even have to think about it in their own brain. That information now exists externally to human beings in some way. And I think that's probably why they talk about words and writing being so important. But I mean, you interpret all writing that you read, though. Like, there's no writing that makes any sense without a human brain to interpret it. So it doesn't actually exist independently of human beings. And you explained all of that without using the word intelligence, which I don't think neatly encapsulates that. All right. Well, look, I feel like I'm doing a bad job because I think it's an interesting concept that adds something to the conversation and neither of you do. So maybe I'm misunderstanding it. I just feel like the word intelligence, if that is what that is, perhaps doesn't fit because it comes with so many, I always forget what's connotations or denotations. They've tethered it too close to intelligence where perhaps it needs an entirely different word if that is what it is. So as to make it more clear. Maybe it's scientists trying to make something simpler by distilling it down into as few words as possible, where this, that wasn't mm. helpful in this case, I think. Well, like super intelligence or something might might be better. Yeah, look, maybe. And I, I think the way they talk about it in this book, they don't make it explicit, but they kind of talk about it in a way that seems to equate intelligence with the idea of mind and intelligence with the idea of culture. And they explicitly say that mind and culture can't exist independently. They, they kind of have to influence each other in a system or a process and that intelligence and intelligence are kind of the same thing. I think they use the word in the other book because they want it to represent a broader concept of culture than what we have as human beings. Because the idea is that 
they're trying to imagine what alien cultures and alien beings might be like. And maybe they don't write things down. Maybe they don't make stories about them. Maybe they do something else, but they still have some way of storing and passing on information that doesn't require um, direct contact between people. I don't, I don't know. I'm doing a bad job of it, I think. Anyway, it made sense to me. You're doing a better job than Extelligence. Sorry. <laughs> I, feel, I, feel I feel bad. I feel bad. Uh, I really liked that idea, and now I feel like I can't really defend it well. It's a very interesting concept to think about. I just had problems with the term. Mm, okay. That's exactly. all. That's all. Yeah, so it's not, not the concept, it's what they've labelled the concept, if that is indeed what the concept is. I mean, we're getting towards the the end of the book, sort of, more or less, because we have these sort of reoccurring disasters. We have these different uh, civilizations and, and species that arise and vanish. They're not very impressed with the round world version of dinosaurs, even though the round world dinosaurs have two different tool using intelligent cultures, which I thought was cool. I've always been into that idea. There are a couple of moments in this book that made me really think of the old video game SimEarth, which, uh, as the name might suggest, was like a spin-off of SimCity. But it was based on, and they mention this in the book, Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, which is the idea that you can think about. And he meant it as a metaphor that was useful. And, of course, as, as they mentioned in this book, some people took it a bit too literally. But he talked about how it's helpful to imagine the Earth as one giant organism and how all of the different living things on it and its different systems all kind of work together like all the different systems in an organism's body. And that's what SimEarth was kind of based on. And one of the fun things in SimEarth, just like the wizards are poking at Roundworld, you could create a planet and then try and influence it to try and get what you wanted. And I was always trying to make intelligent dinosaurs because any different sort of branch of life could evolve into an intelligent form in that game if they were lucky. (laughs) So you could kind of poke them and go, I really want to make intelligent dinosaurs let it run for a while and then look at what was happening. I mean, basically, the wizards are playing SimEarth, and I'd be very surprised, knowing Pratchett's sort of interest in, in video games, that he hadn't played it at some point. I found this very amusing, this energy of, like, why the fuck are dinosaurs so fucking popular <laughs> coming from the science writers in this, which is an energy that I feel very often in my work, which I very much appreciate. <laughs> it's like, why cannot... I get people to care about chemistry the same way they care about dinosaurs or space. I don't get it. And there's, yeah, that energy is very clearly coming through these chapters, and I loved it. And yet they still had some of the the old hang-ups about dinosaurs that people have. Like, they talk about how we lost the name Brontosaurus, and they make that very, I don't know if you remember this, but in the footnote about this, it's very passive-aggressive, like, anti-PC comment. And just as a quick reminder, if nobody knows, the way that naming works in biology or in paleontology is that the type specimen, the first specimen of a thing, has the primary name. If two people discover the same species and give them different names, then later on they realize they're the same species, the general consensus or the general procedure is that you use the name that was coined first. And what happened with Brontosaurus is they realized that Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus were probably the same dinosaur. Apatosaurus had been discovered and named first. So Apatosaurus became the official name, even though Brontosaurus was the popularly known name. That has gone back and forth a bit. There's there's people who've said since this book was published that maybe Brontosaurus actually was still a separate genus. Maybe there's a call for making that the primary name anyway. There's a lot of back and forth about it. But they, in a footnote, quite disparagingly talk about how we lost Brontosaurus and it says Apatosaurus. It probably means gravitationally challenged lizard. And I'm like, guys, 
I like that was I had a bit of a hand in my on my face moment kind of what are you doing because it doesn't mean gravitationally challenged lizard it means deceptive lizard for reasons that I won't go into it's worth reading about though uh and I just thought that was a bit I don't know it most of the time they're writing I'm like I'm I'm with you I'm on your team every now and then they would say things and not very often but every now and then they'd say something where I'm like I wonder if you would still think this today or write this today I mean, they already had me offside when they mentioned Jack, and I'm like, who's Jack? So. (laughs) (laughs) If we're talking about PC things and that sort of thing, as much as I love the setup with the wizards poking around in a world not like their own, I don't love how everyone in this book is a man. I'm very sick of all the science voices. Still today, yesterday, I found there was a new Netflix show with a dude at the helm that's about science, and I'm just so very tired of it. I actually started listing all the women that they mention in the book, because um, any time you go into the history of science, it's always like there's there's no women mentioned, and I was very worried that it was going to be like that. But actually, to their credit, halfway through the list started getting a lot longer that I could keep track of. So they were trying to include some diverse voices in the book. Well, not voices, because, I mean, obviously they're not a very diverse author team, but they were at least trying to credit the science to a a diverse amount of people, which is nice. In good news on that front, there's a new short story collection out where each story is focused around a woman associated with the Nobel Prize, and that's by an Australian author, so that's... That's cool. I think I haven't read it yet. I haven't got a copy yet, but yeah, that I mean, doesn't make up for any of it, but it is a step <laughs> in a good direction. Yeah. It's and I mean, thing. the Nobel Prizes themselves are notoriously sexist as well. So, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, baby steps. But um, yeah, the, the longer I'm in science, the more sick I get of, of that. Yeah. And I, I mean, look, they kind of have made life difficult for themselves in that respect in the fiction because it's well established that the wizards are the stuffy university types and they're all men and the witches are all women and they're not stuffy university types. They're, uh, you know, witches. Uh, I don't know. I was trying to think of how to describe it, but there's quite a bit of diversity in the kind of approaches to witchcraft in the way that there isn't hmm. in wizardry, which is quite interesting in itself now that I think about that. But anyway, by using the wizards as the obvious in, in this book particularly, yeah, there's there's not much room for diversity. Without giving too much away about the later books, they do find a few ways to counter that later, but they're talking about different things, and it's still mostly the wizards that are involved, so it's still mostly men. But they, they find a few ways to introduce more women into the narrative later on. I mean, the the only fictional woman who gets a mention here is Mrs. Whitlow, I think, and that's just right at the end where it's like, don't dust the universe, please, <laughs> which is which is a great gag, but at the same time it's like, guys, come on. Yeah. It's really wild how many things in the body are named after dudes. Like I realize that that's because like back in the day it was all the scientists were doing a thing, but the, the the space between the uterus and I can't remember if it's the bladder or the colon. I can't remember which side it is, but there's one of those spaces. It's called the pouch of Douglas, and I know it is his last name, but I find that incredibly funny and also weird. And that's also the the things are named after the men who coined the discovery but most of the time if you look at the history of science there there have always been women doing science the wife has always been doing writing up the manuscript and there's the daughters are doing the lab work and they just don't get any of the credit because they weren't important at the time 
Yeah, Einstein's wife was severely screwed over yeah. in lots of different ways. But that's a whole separate podcast. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah angry moments science, yeah. in science. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that podcast exists, and we'll find it and link to it in the show notes. I saw. I, I don't sure know if I need to feel does. angrier this year, though. Like, I just, I don't know if I need to have more well, things I to did, feel angry about. I didn't specifically mean the angry part, but the women in science getting their dues kind of podcast. I'm sure there's. But there's, there's always like an anger associated with it because, like, the reason that that exists is because of all the losses in the past and all the things that have been overlooked. So you like it can be joyous, but it comes with a in inbuilt rage. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think the longer you realize that this has been going on and the longer uh, it still goes on to this day, the more you get angry about it, I think, very reasonably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a book about women in science. I know a few of these and I, I will look them up after this and I will send you links. Yeah, please do. We'll put them in the show notes. If you want a starting point for reading more women in science, there's a book club that I'm a part of called the STEMinist Book Club. So that's a combination of the acronym STEM, S-T-E-M, Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics and Feminism. We're on Twitter and there's a Goodreads group. There's a new read every two months and there's a bit of a backlog now. So that's a really good sort of starting place for if you want to read more about women in science or science about women. But look, we're getting we're getting to the end of the book. They've found these different bits of life. They've tried to encourage them to form civilizations. They really want there to be intelligent life inside their little universe, but they're trying not to be actual gods and just create it by cheating. They're trying to follow the rules of the universe. And it's just not going well. And it goes so badly that pretty much after the dinosaurs are wiped out, Ridcully is like, we should just shut this thing down. It's not doing anything useful and we're wasting all our time on it. And uh, everyone's a bit sad, but they're sort of like, okay. And it's at this point that the librarian spots some ape-like creatures on the planet who seem to be getting a bit intelligent because they're mucking about with sticks a bit uh, and decides he's going to get involved, gets down into the planet with some flint, tries to teach them about how to use tools and fire, then leave the experiment alone for a little while. And it runs at this sort of very high speed. So if you when you're not interacting directly with it, it runs at like tens of thousands a year a second or minute or hour or something like that. But they suddenly realize just as they're talking about turning it off that there is intelligent life down there. But when they go to look for it, it's gone. All that's left is a space elevator and a series of space stations in a circle around the planet. And the intelligent life forms have buggered off somewhere else. And they managed to break the space elevator and free the computer, which is another form of intelligence, which Hex has managed to talk to, sending it hurtling off into the void by itself, just before the planet is once again beset by horrible tragedies and uh, calamities. And I kind of love this as an ending. It gave them sort of an excuse to talk about how to make space elevators and how you would get off the planet. But we never meet any of this intelligent species. It's implied that they are the descendants of the apes that the librarian has helped out. But it's not necessarily the case. I thought that in one of the science chapters, it very explicitly says that, oh, the wizards have missed us. Oh, yeah, you're right. Or maybe it's not us and something later is better mm. than us. If it's a human civilization or a human-like civilization, which it seems pretty clear it's meant to be, we kind of rejoin them well after they've done anything that we've done and left. Which means that they sort of, you know, they go, well, we'll just turn it off anyway. But as it turns out, 
turning off the reactor doesn't really matter because the universe has become self-sustaining. It kind of just runs itself now. And so they decide to put it in Rincewind's office because he's been uh, promoted to the egregious professor of cruel and unusual geography, which is still one of the best titles ever. <laughs> um, it's very good. I love it. Although I thought it was a bit rude at the end there where they make it clear that he doesn't actually get any of the privileges of that role. He just, just a name really that lets him get free meals. Although he seems happy enough with it. It's probably also another like very subtle nod to like university culture though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Fair enough. There's some tea in there. I do want to talk about the last nonfiction chapter because I found it a bit, look, I kind of got what it was trying to say. But I don't know. I think when I first read it, I really liked that chapter. And on rereading it, I sort of was a bit like, meh, uh, you got anything else to say? Because it felt to me like basically they were just going, well, you know, we think the world matters and it's the best version we're likely to get and it could be destroyed at any moment. So why don't we just make the best of it? <laughs> and I was like, is that is that really the conclusion you want to leave us with? It seems weird. Well, I I actually really like this detail where um, it, it it leads off from the wizards having missed all of human civilization, basically, in my interpretation anyway, and having interpreted this book as like a sort of exploration of, of how big the universe is and how it came to be and that sort of thing. I thought that really drove home how insignificant humans are. Mm. which which can be very scary to think about. Um, like, I remember as a kid when I first started learning about the scale of the universe, and I'm like, what? And then we can just, like, die and then we're not here anymore? Like, it's a very big thing that I avoid thinking about at any cost. <laughs> but it's also, it, it can really put your problems in context as well, thinking about it that way. You're like, all right, I mean, the universe will keep spinning without us, which is what it does in the fiction part as well. The universe doesn't need you, really, which can be scary and comforting at the same time. I'm not sure I'm expressing myself very clearly, but... <laughs> no, no, that, that was <laughs> quite beautiful. <laughs> that's given me a new appreciation for that chapter. I see what you mean, because that vital part of the history that's missing is the us bit, which is covered in the next book and even the ones after that, which become much more focused on evolution and humanity. But I like that. And it does kind of dovetail nicely into the ending of the book where after they've realized that the thing is going to sustain itself, Rincewind kind of puts it back in his office after running to the bursar who has unfortunately caught a dose of uncertainty. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I love that. That was so good. He just vanishes. Anytime he remembers who he is, he, he doesn't know where he is and he vanishes and randomly appears somewhere else. I thought that was hilarious. But yeah, they um, put it back on the shelf and Rinswin talks to the librarian and they sort of go off and do their own thing. But inside the globe, the stars and dust in the universe sort of form this turtle shape that floats through space. I'm like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> um, so it was nice. It was a nice way to end it. And I, I have a new appreciation of that last nonfiction chapter now. Mm. Which brings us to the end of the book. We kind of glossed over it a lot because it's not the sort of book where you can just sort of explicitly talk about the plot and, and all of the contents. We could have been here for like a long, long time if we tried to do that. But are there any favourite quotes or bits that people would like to talk about before we move on to questions from our listeners? I've got one to footnote. If William of Ockham had been a wizard at Unseen University, he would have grown a beard because I was in the section all about um, the obvious answers to things. And so I just really yeah. liked that they took us like 
from the race, but there's a lot of assumed knowledge there, and I just like that they skipped right to that, and that's just kind of a great image. Yeah, I like that one too. I think one of my favorite bits was the very first sentence of chapter 28. The earth has been a giant snowball on many occasions. I, I think <laughs> I burst out laughing because, I mean, yeah, it's true, but for some reason it's very funny when you put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and they say that it looks like a good Christmas ornament as well. I can't remember, is it the bursar who says that? It was one of like the, the happily gormless guys. He's like, that'd be a nice Hogswatch ornament. Yeah, yeah. That was nice. I really liked the footnote piss take of uh, Wissiwig that's uh, in one of the early chapters. Later on, the wizards wondered if the new universe might have been different, if the dean had waggled his fingers in a different way. Perhaps within it, matter might have naturally formed itself into, say, garden furniture, or one giant nine-dimensional flower a trillion miles across. But Arch-Chancellor Ridcully pointed out that this was not very useful thinking because of the ancient principle of widgewidgening, which is hard to pronounce, but it's an acronym, and the footnote explains that it stands for what you get is what you're given, and it's no good whining. <laughs> which I thought was, uh, was very funny. Uh, I enjoyed that. This, uh, I, won't, I won't read any other quotes, although there are some really good gags in it. I, I recommend that people do read it because uh, you'll enjoy it. But there was a, there are a few things that were a little bit harsh. Like there's one where in one of the early chapters they're talking about the things that earlier scientists could determine, and they use the phrase "the only ones their feeble methods could find." And I'm like, it's a bit, it's a bit rough, especially since everything's built on there. It's like it's a staircase, so like you got to have their feeble <laughs> methods to start with. Otherwise, you can't have your big fancy ones. Yeah. True. Yeah, it's also the sort of thing that doesn't age very well because a lot of the things that they've written about for this very book are now out of date. Yeah. Because oh. the feeble methods have evolved since then. Yeah. There's a there's a bit in the book where the librarian goes through L space because they realize that there must be evolution happening on the round world and the wizards have encountered evolution before um on an island where there was a god of evolution in the last continent, which is very funny, but that God just was making improvements to existing creatures. He wasn't ever creating new species, which is why in this book they know what evolution is, but they don't think it can create new species. And so they get the librarian to go and find a book on it. And he, he goes off into L space to find the best book about evolution and manages to accidentally stumble across Charles Darwin while he's reading the book. And the, the Charles Darwin says, what manner of shade are you when he sees him? And the librarian says, ook. And then there's a footnote that says, oh, kind of reddish brown. <laughs> <laughs> very silly, but I liked that an awful lot. Yeah. And there were just, there, look, there are a lot of other ones. There was a very hitchhiker's moment later in the book where the dean is trying to teach the apes how to write by showing them words. And it just reminded me of Arthur Dent talking to the not cave people uh, on the prehistoric earth um, in the hitchhiker's books. It's just, yeah, there's a lot of great moments. There's a, it's not a quote that I've just remembered, but there was, I, I need to mention the science of dish world from the, <laughs> from the crab civilization, because that was another one that really stuck with me. Like we could have been reading the science of dish world if the crab civilization had panned out. That's yeah. very good. It's a real loss for us. It is. It is. Uh, but look, we did get some great questions, so maybe we should, uh, we should press on to those. Liz, what's, uh, what's the first question? Let's start with this one from A. Edmund via Discord. I saw in the intro that it has been revised or updated since it was published. I was wondering if anyone is reading the original edition. I read the part where speculation that the Higgs boson might never be found, so even the revised edition needs revising. So do you think it was worth the effort to update the existing volume, or would it have been better off to leave it as a product of its time? 
So you mentioned earlier, Ben, that you were trying to do both at the same time, like read both. Yeah. And look, it's kind of fun figuring out what was new. Like a lot of the bits that are new are quite obvious because they reference dates of things that happened after 1999. So there's a lot of things like in 2001, blah, 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 blah. But what was fascinating to me was this, there's two whole new chapters in this book, uh, science chapters. And the way they make space for that is to split two of the original fiction chapters in half, which is why some of them are really short. But also, there's so many chapters that have new paragraphs or even just, like, there was one chapter that just had one number changed in one bit. It was like they changed 800 million years to 700 million years. Like, they double-checked that figure and found it was wrong or the science had been updated or something. But I got up to the bit where they were talking about what kind of space missions might happen in the future, and I looked up all the ones they mentioned and almost without exception, every single one of them had been cancelled. And I got very depressed and decided, no, oh, I don't know if I want to keep doing this now. But I think it would be very interesting to look into this and see how things have changed. Because there are a lot of stuff in the book that is still relevant. And a lot of the broader theories and the history of the world stuff is is pretty on the ball, so to speak. I did not mean that as a pun. Uh, but <laughs> there are plenty of things which have changed, um, usually in little ways. But as I sort of alluded to before, it, it's often the things that they have latched onto as a new development that they want to put in the book that were kind of a flash in the pan and didn't really go anywhere. And they've kind of brought it up as a big thing, whereas now if you were to read the history of that particular branch of science or thought in that area, the thing that they've put in as a new development doesn't even register because people kind of looked at it and went, nah, not really. So it's interesting, and I'm considering writing something about the science that has happened since this book was updated, but it might be very long. So we'll see how we go. I might just compile a list of some of my favorites, and that probably won't go in the show notes because it's going to take a long time. I might write that as a separate article at some point and put it up on the website. As someone who was in science until, like, 2016, none of this really struck me as egregiously wrong, and I think that could be outing me as someone that doesn't know very much about physics. So maybe if I was more uh, <laughs> aware of the really cutting-edge physics, I might have gotten more of that sense. But I think in most places, the book does a really good job of focusing on the scientific thinking and not on the specific knowledge, which which is why it doesn't feel very dated to me. I've only read the new version and I liked it, but the question being, would it have been better off to leave it as a product of its time? I'm leaning towards... Yes, unless you're going to update it every three years or something, why do one update and not leave it as it was and just have a different introduction or like a few different extra footnotes that says this has changed rather than updating it as a whole thing? Because if it's like a different version, like if you have an introduction that says some science has changed from this time, so keep that in mind, like that's enough for reprints perhaps? Because it seems strange to me to do one update and not more. One of the fun things is looking at what the results have been since then. Like there's a bit in one of the chapters where, and I mentioned this earlier, they talk about how many extra solar planets have been detected and they updated the 2002 edition because in 1999 they'd found like hardly, maybe found one or a very small number. By the time they updated it in 2002, they found 70. Now, as of August 2020, we found 4,301. So it's like quite amazing to look at those numbers and think, wow, look, there's definitely a lot of planets out there and we've seen a lot of them now, uh, or at least detected them. And I remember when it was a big thing, like back when this book was being first published, that 
we'd never really found one. And then we found some and people were like, this is amazing. We now know that there really are other planets elsewhere. So yeah, there's, there's stuff like that in there too, where it's quite exciting to look this stuff up. But then you start, yeah, looking at the various uh, space missions and how they've all been cancelled and it gets very depressing. So, you know, there's good and bad. Next question. Um, Let's just say they're all from Discord, so I'm just going to say who they're from. This one's from Belle. If you were an unseen university wizard, which element of round world science would you find most astonishing? For me, it's lack of turtle. Like, it'd have to be just that there isn't one (laughs) because it's such a big part of what you know about your solar system or your universe and to have one that doesn't have turtles and elephants you'd be like what the hell is that i think the whole thinking the world was flat that would freak me out i'd be like no my world's flat (laughs) your world's a stupid ball it's obvious like look at it like how can you not know this but also i mean all of the physics stuff is just like it boggles your mind in our universe let alone if you lived in one where it wasn't needed all right so this one is from avril I think the question I have might be too big to answer and is more general than pressure related, but with both the climate emergency and COVID-19, we've seen many people, including some world leaders, ignore science or treat it as an opinion that only has the weight of any other opinion. Do you have any thoughts on why that is and if anything can be done about it? This is a good question. As in, they're all good questions, but it's a very topical question. It's a, it's a very big question and it's what I think about at work pretty much every week is how can we convince people who are not convinced about climate change or about vaccines to trust in those things? And uh, unfortunately, there's not a good answer to that question. Um, But uh, a part of it is that certain scientific views or certain views on science are now so politicized that there's no arguing with people, basically. It's like you, you have a political view... Therefore, you believe in this and there's no amount of convincing or no amount of evidence or no amount of communication that's going to change your mind. And especially with climate change, you might feel reassured that there's actually a lot of people who do believe in it, like regular human people in Australia. I think there's like 70 percent in a recent poll found that it was important to them in terms of who they vote for. They, they were looking for people with climate policies. So people do care about this, but there's this very big lobby, very powerful people with a lot of money who want to shut down climate science and all discussions about climate change. So a lot of these questions are a lot bigger than the science itself. So next question is from Joel. This book has explicit opinions in the author's voice. With three authors, it may be hard to pin an opinion to any individual, i.e. Terry, but do you think you learn something about Terry's personal philosophy that might make you read Discworld novels differently going forward? That question didn't go where I thought it was going to go. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I feel like it reaffirms for me some things. Um, and I think his voice comes in a little bit more editorially in this book, maybe explicitly than in some, because there's these content about the real world. And even though we know that that's primarily written by Jack and Ian, he definitely had a hand in it. So they're not writing anything that he disagrees with. I think also in the way that the wizards talk about round world, his affection for our planet and life on it is pretty clear. And I think his appreciation for the way that people think and what is important to them is very clear. I think there's some little asides in there that Jack and Ian put in that feel like something Pratchett might have written or or said that also exposed that, you know, even your favourite authors, no matter how great they are, they have biases and they have blind spots. 
And I think there are a few of those that are exposed in this book. Nobody's perfect and everyone has things that they haven't considered. And I think that's in there too. So it made me a bit more aware of those things, maybe. Uh, having read books written by both Jack and Ian together and also a book written by Ian Stewart alone, he wrote a sequel to Flatland, which is a famous book which explored the concept of dimensions by having a two-dimensional character meet a three-dimensional character and go on an adventure. Ian Stewart wrote a book called Flatterland, which is a sequel in which he explores sort of higher planes of mathematics and really weird maths ideas through a similar kind of mechanism. And what I noticed from that, and I think I said this earlier possibly, was that I think they learned from him. You know, they learned from Terry how to be funny and a lot about comedy writing, and you see that in their other writing. So next question is from Molikov. What do you remember as a lie to children that you learned when young that you had to unlearn or learn deeper as an adult? I'm mad because Ben stole mine earlier, so I'm going to get in quick now. (laughs) Well, mine's a specific science example um, uh, that I learned in school, and it was about electrons. (laughs) It's it's about um, electrons and how they fit inside atoms. So the first time you learn about electrons, you only really learn that atoms are made of these different charged particles There's these positively charged ones and there's negatively charged ones and you've got a certain number of them and they have to balance out. And when they don't, you get ions and that's all there really is to it. And then the next year, they tell you, actually, they're also arranged in these little rings around the nucleus where all the positively charged particles live. So the electrons kind of orbit the center of the atom, which is where you get these classic sort of representations of the atoms with the, with the little rings around them that you see on jewelry and t-shirts and everything still. Then it gets really complicated. So very late in high school or early in university, they sort of throw that out of the window and they tell you, actually, where chemistry intersects with quantum mechanics is where the electrons actually physically live. (laughs) So there's this concept called orbitals and they have this sort of weird 3D shape And depending on their energies, they've got different sorts of shapes. So the low energy ones, just a sphere and the higher energy ones look kind of like hourglasses and they just get more complicated from then on. And actually, they're not really as well defined as those rings that you're shown earlier in your schooling. They're actually described as a probability of where the electron could be at any given time. And they also tell you that they've got spins and all of these really weird quantum things that you think that should only be confined to physics. And the reason it's probably stuck with me is that I really like this progression of, of peeling away at these layers of complexity. My, I remember my, <laughs> some of my classmates were very annoyed every year when the chemistry teacher would basically start the year by saying, you know, everything that we told you last year, that was a lie. <laughs> and and my friends would be like, oh, what again? <laughs> oh, no. But for me, it, it felt like you're getting deeper into chemistry and you're getting closer to what the actual physical reality is, a bit closer to how chemistry truly works in our world. And that's really, I think, what science is all about. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um, for me, it's kind of it's the human heart because um, it's not quite a lie to children, but 
I mean, the whole thing is that it's simplified. We're taught that it is a pump for blood. It pumps your blood around your body. And I um, went into medical school thinking, oh, yeah, the heart, that's just like this muscle. That is one chamber and it squeezes and the blood goes around your body. And one of the earliest things they teach you is that it's actually a lot more complicated than that. And I'm sorry if I'm telling everyone things they already knew. This is me on my personal journey of learning. I learned that the heart has four chambers and like it works, it has its own like electricity system that helps it know when to beat and how that can go wrong because all sorts of different problems. One half, and this is kind of a lies to children version of this, is that one half services the lungs and the other half services the rest of the body so that there's like circuits that go around so like it goes through one half of the thing, then it gets oxygen from the lungs, then it goes through the other half and then it goes around the body and then that's how you exchange oxygen and make the blood worth pumping around because I was kind of like, oh yeah, blood pumps around the body, just goes around and around and around. But there'd be no point to that if something wasn't happening to it along the way. And the journey of blood is just so interesting, like through it, like, cause it goes through smaller and smaller blood vessels and it like collects things. It gets rid of things. Um, and the way that it's pumped back up the body is like through muscles. Like that's why soldiers faint while they're standing in parades in the military because they're not moving their legs, which means the blood pulls doesn't go back up and they get faint because their blood is not circulating as much as it should be. Um, but the thing I found most interesting was how organic, for lack of a better word, the heart is. It seems like it should be a lot more mechanical and things, but having actually seen what the valves look like, it shouldn't work. It's kind of like if a group of people were like, oh, we've got to quickly make a heart. How are we going to, all right, um, let's just make these two flaps. Like um, they'll, they'll go like this and how are we going to, okay, there'll be strings that pull them down and then so that the blood will force it up and that will do for now. Um, we'll fix it later. And then no one has. Like, it's just incredible. This is one of the most important organs we have. And it's just so, like, by the seat of its pants, it looks ridiculous on the inside. And it it shouldn't work as well as it does, but it does work well, usually. So, yeah. Thank you. That's my thing. Thanks. I'm now a lot more worried about heart disease than I was before. (laughs) No, it's actually a lot better because because it's just like flaps and things. It doesn't wear down like a a metal edge or like a a thin lip that goes across it. That could wear down in a row. But because it's so like flimby and not quite smooth and things, there's more capacity for it to clamp together. Like it's almost like there's fail safes built in. It's all gooey. Now I'm genuinely confident. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and the strings are good because they tether it in place. Like that's like we literally do have heart strings, and I thought that was awesome. Like I, I always thought that was just like a a metaphor. But like if you tug at your heartstrings, that's like it's because your blood is pumping faster through your heart, and the valves are opening more. Oh my god, I've never thought of that that way. I love that. Yeah, that's yeah. They call cool. the cordae tendine if you want to write someone a beautiful love poem. <laughs> 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 uh, that's great. Awesome. I love it. Hmm. Look, I think I have heaps, most of them to do with sea monsters, probably. I was like, there was a bit in the book, actually, this reminds me where they talk about mosasaurs and they're like, oh, nobody knows what mosasaurs are. And I'm like, I do. They were in all my books about dinosaurs and sea monsters. And, um, you know, but that's because I was a nerdy kid or a kid as otherwise known. Uh, we're all nerds when we're kids, but I, I did want to bring up and I, we might put some of this in the show notes that. Bell in the Discord responded to this and talked about the fact that there are lots of different kinds of lies to children and some of them are not good, you know, because there aren't just lies to children that teach them things about science. There are lies to children that teach them things about society, some of which 
you know, are for their own good. Like, you know, the whole idea of don't talk to strangers. Well, you know, obviously in your life, sometimes you have to talk to strangers and most people are perfectly fine for you to talk to. But because you're a young kid who can't make that distinction and doesn't have good instincts, it's better if you don't talk to anyone who you don't know. So you get told that that's not a safe thing to do when, you know, in our regular lives, we talk to people we don't know all the time. And then, you know, there are other more insidious things about kind of the darker sides to our culture that are also there. And I think when she wrote about that, it made me really think about some of the journeys I've been on in my life to unlearn some of that stuff. And that's really hard, but really, really important. So we might put some of that into the show notes because that was a really good response from Belle. Mm. Uh, For the final question, it's from Sven. What is the most interesting science tidbit you learned from this book? For myself, it was the atomic squash court. Never heard about this, and I studied high-power electrical engineering. There's one bit that really blew my mind, and it's just this one very, very short sentence in one of the chapters about evolution, and it just reads, From the form of the tooth, it is clear that this mammal had hooves. It just kind of blows my mind that biologists can tell that. I don't, again, I'm, I'm just a pleb chemist. <laughs> I don't know about how things work, but like looking at a tooth, you can tell that it has hooves. Like how does, how, how, I, I, yeah, I, um, I need to know more. I'm afraid I have bad news for you. Oh no. Uh, they couldn't tell that. <laughs> um, Aww. That is one of the bits of more modern science that does not stand up when you look at it in the light of um, further interpretation. However... Temperance Brennan could do it. You can tell a shitload from teeth, and paleontologists do this all the time. So you are right to be impressed by that. That one (laughs) instance was wrong. But absolutely, usually you can tell because the tooth tells you so much because it tells you what kind of things they would have eaten. It tells you how big of things they would have eaten. It gives you a fairly good idea of the size of the creature, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, uh, I might be getting that wrong, but there's a lot of details that you can pick up just from a tooth. And there are an awful lot of species that are known primarily from their teeth. And in fact, anytime a dinosaur or another creature has don't or don at the end of its um, genus name, that's Latin for tooth. And that probably means it was named because of its teeth. Or it's really it. into ham. Or it's, <laughs> it's, it's good. It's a good dinosaur. But um, so what you're essentially saying with all of that is that you can't argue with the tooth. I just can't get I'm over sorry. my disappointment right now. I'm so sorry. I'm disappointed too. I missed that line. Both about the bun and about that fact. Because oh, apparently I have really good instincts for things that seem too far of a stretch. <laughs> I mean, look, this is how I'm going to interpret that. Maybe it's because you are a scientist. So if something truly astounds you with all of your knowledge of science, that's because it's something that is a little bit unlikely and therefore it falls into the camp of things that are more likely to be proven untrue because you've seen so much of what is true, if that makes sense. That's very kind of you to say, but probably it just goes in the pile of Anna doesn't know about biology. (laughs) But I mean, Uh, but uh, yeah. Sorry, I, I feel bad now. Well, I once tweeted um, our big just giant tooth as a joke and I got so many serious replies and yet I still don't really know the answer. I'm pretty sure the answer is no because you can have beak and tooth. But, um, yeah, <laughs> so I just wanted to tell you that because I had like a morning I was like, is a beak just a big tooth on a tooth? No, but it's not. <laughs> I think the answer is no, but I I couldn't accurately describe to you why not. I think beaker is hair. Uh, yeah, I think there's a, there's some sort of analog there, but I don't 
I don't know the, the full detail. Um, I, I, I feel bad for ruining yours, Anna. <laughs> I feel really bad about that. So I'm going to talk about mine and assume that it's not real. Uh, which is the bit where they talked about the guy who ran the experiment with the evolutionary circuit. So, you know, they've done this with software where they make it mash up random solutions and they, they try and get it to come up with the right one, which is kind of a bit how neural net stuff works, but not quite. But he did it with physical electronic circuits that were reprogrammable in case there was something about the physical circuit that might be different. And the fact that the solution to the problem that he said it came out with so many fewer parts than they thought would ever be needed and also that they couldn't really understand how it worked, but it did work. I thought that was amazing. I, I And I didn't remember that at all from the first time I read the book. So I did not research that, but now I'm going to just assume that if I do, I will find out that that's not really how it worked and uh, I, I'm wrong to be impressed. Um, so, yeah. Science! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Everything you know is wrong. <laughs> I'm ready emotionally to be told that this is not accurate as well. It was about there only being three T-Rex skeletons that had been discovered by the time Jurassic Park came around. And then because oh, of no. Jurassic Park, it um, spawned interest. And then there's, oh, Ben's going to ruin this. He's going to ruin it. <laughs> you can't see this. Uh, it's all, no, it's all well, across his face. I can't, look, I can't Ooh. ruin it, ruin it. But I also don't know where the numbers came from because I did check that out. And there were a lot more than three T-Rex specimens. To be fair, though, there were only three that were mostly complete. So there were two that had about two-thirds of the bones, and there was one that was about 85%. Sue, the famous one. But there weren't very many. And since there's been quite a few more, they were a bit vague. But I think if what they meant was reasonably complete skeletons, then yes, that's true. There's only three. I think, I think like my amazement is in the scarcity. So the numbers doesn't matter. It's kind of like how like there's only like nine zeppelins in the world or something like that. Not zeppelins, blimps. What? what? Well, there's like very few blimps. I'm pretty sure this is probably wrong, but I, I, I'm going to look that up. Chat amongst yourselves while I look up how many it's blimps. Like it's there just are a blimp the- and you miss it. Oh my god! I was going to oh, say the the amount of blimps <laughs> is just a blimp on the radar or something like that. <laughs> Great minds. I'm glad all our minds went to the same place. Right. But it, I mean, look, that was a difficult one for me to answer. I was kind of, because I've read it before, I'm like, well, I should know everything that's in this book, even if I've forgotten it. But that's not really how it works. And also I was reading the revised edition. So there were two whole new chapters and a lot of new little tidbits. So there are estimated to be between 20 and 25 blimps, but only around 13 are active. So if you see a blimp, that's a big deal. Wow. This is why when the Goodyear blimp comes around, everyone's like, it's the Goodyear blimp. Because you're not likely to see it. Yeah. Because it's rare. Well, those are all our questions. Thank you so much to all of our subscribers who sent in questions and all from our Discord, which you can access by becoming a paid supporter of the podcast. You can find more details about that on our website com, but we'd like to give an extra special big shout out to all of our supporters this month because without you we wouldn't have had any questions apparently no one else wanted to ask us any but that's all right um <laughs> your questions were so great we really appreciate it thank you for supporting us if you don't want to support us monetarily you can always do that via other means you can give us a review or tweet about us or just tell someone who you know likes terry pratchett that we exist that's a nice thing to do you know then we can have a nice conversation in their ear as well as in yours uh, but of course, we wouldn't have a nice conversation at all if we didn't have a guest. So we also need to thank Anna Avenenen for joining us. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. If people want to find out more about the Australian Academy of Science, where should they go looking? Um, we're on most social media platforms and we have a website and we have a part of the website that's called Curious, 
that has all of our science content on it, all of the videos and all of the articles. And um, the reason it's called Curious is that anything that you're curious about, you just pop it in the search bar and you'll come up with some cool science stuff. That sounds awesome. I'm definitely going to spend some more time doing that, I think. And if people want to uh, see your own writing and thoughts about science and the life of the universe and, and everything, where can they find you on the internet? I am mostly on Twitter. So that's that's where my science and my random thoughts about pasta will be. So um, the handle is at lady underscore beaker, because chemistry. <laughs> Thank you very much. This month, though, we, we also do want to squeeze in a plug for you, Liz, because you have something to plug. Oh, yeah. I've got a short story out in a collection called Collisions, because um, last year I was shortlisted in Liminal's Fiction Prize. Um, Liminal is an Asian-Australian publication in Australia, for those who don't know. And they put out an anthology of all the shortlisted and longlisted pieces. Um, and I've got a weird one. They're always a weird one, if I've written it, called The Voyeur Out, which is about a woman who inherits the ability to travel back and look at all of the death days of different relatives. So like if you died on the 1st of January and then you have a daughter or a cousin, they can now travel to every 1st of January in your life and have a look at, see what you were doing. So it's about what would happen if you inherited the ability to look into your own family's past firsthand and would that ruin your life? That's pretty full on. Okay, now yes. I definitely have to read it. Uh, that's coming out very soon, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can find it. And we will, of course, be back next month. And after a couple of months reading slightly odder things from the Terry Pratchett universe, we are going back to the Discworld next month. And not just back to the Discworld, but back to the Ramtops and the Kingdom of Lanka, where we're going to meet our old mates, the witches, uh, who are going to fight off some vampires. Because what are we reading next time, Liz? A book that is going to let me talk about vampire boners a whole lot. <laughs> Carpe joculum. <laughs> oh, no. It's going to be a disaster. I'm going to prepare my slides. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought about this. Uh, but, look, we will hopefully have the wonderful, uh, hilarious, and mediating influence of uh, actor, singer, and cabaret star Gillian Cosgriff to help us not just talk about vampire boners for a full two hours. Um, I'm sure it's we'll get hours. there. Three hours, come on. If, uh, oh, of course, it takes at least an hour just to explain what they are. Mm. But if you'd like to send us any questions, please don't make them about vampire boners. Uh, but you can tweet them at us or send them in via other social media um, using the hashtag Pratchat36 for that next episode. So thank you once again, Anna. Thank you, Liz. And until next time, make the most of what you got because you never know when you're going to go the way of the crab civilization. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Anna Arvenenen. Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast and listen to our past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat35. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.